Hey, this is Justin Vaughn. I am here with Jen Schneider, and uh, our colleague Corey Cook could not be here with us today, but our other colleague, Monica Hubbard, from Boise State University School of Public Service is. You're listening to The Big Tent, and for today's show, we're going to focus on a pretty interesting topic, so we think, uh, the, the urban-rural divide here in Idaho and maybe, maybe nationally. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted Monica to come in today is because she works um, a lot in environmental policy and does a lot of survey work. Um, so we'll have you weigh in here shortly. But I thought we might uh, discuss this particular survey result that I found this week. A colleague sent it to me. Uh, it's a survey that was done by Colorado College back in my old neighborhood on the Front Range <laughs> in Colorado. Uh, and those folks do surveys of voters in eight western states. Um, so that's Arizona, Colorado, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. And this is the first year they've included Idaho in their surveying. Um, so there were some uh, results in there that I thought might kick us off. So they focus that there's a part of the poll that focuses in particular on conservation attitudes in the West. And so for the Idaho portion of their survey, they talked to about 400 people. Uh, and I wrote some numbers down because we all know how I am about remembering numbers. But it was about evenly split in terms of gender, 90% white folks. About 45% uh, identified as conservative, 20% as liberals, and 31% as moderate. So that's about half Republican and half the rest uh, responding. What's interesting is, uh, I think, the rural-urban breakdown of the respondents. So about 36% identified as being from an urban area. So that's either a big city or a suburban area. And so, Monica, I'm interested in hearing on whether or not that's the right breakdown. Yeah. And then uh, about 62% identified as being from a rural area, and that's small town or rural. Um, and there were some uh, results that I found really interesting um, based on the, those 400 responses, one question that the, the survey folks asked was, do you think most people who live in big cities have values that are similar or different to yours? And 30% said that they felt that people in big cities had values that were similar to theirs. And 66% said they didn't. So I think that's a sort of a stark indication of what we might be calling the rural-urban divide. But Monica, you've been thinking about this a lot longer than I have. So so what do those numbers tell you, or what are you thinking when you hear that? You, you know, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I study water, and we were looking a bit at water and differences, and I think values is the key term here. And I think there are differences in values, but overall, when we start looking at differences, we don't see very many differences in what people believe and what they know. So I think that's the difference uh, difference that we're looking at in the divide. And I think people might believe that their values are significantly different than they really are. I think we're more in line than we like to think. I think I think I think that's right. I think mm -hmm. that there's this perception that oh, city dwellers are different from me if I live in the in the rural area and vice versa. I was in Blackfoot, Idaho yesterday, and I presented some of the survey research that we've done to the Chamber of Commerce mm -hmm. in, in in the greater Blackfoot metro area. Uh, and um, I one of the things I did is I broke out some of the some of the instances where people in eastern Idaho were a little bit different than people in the rest, right, and, and than the rest of the state. And that's a pretty conservative, pretty deep red part of mm -hmm. Idaho, right? And yet, 
Uh, one way that they were different was they care even more about education than the rest of the state. And they care even less about taxes than the rest of the state. But if you were to think, well, what does a deep red you know, county think? They're probably all about cutting taxes, and they don't really care about funding or education. Yet you compare them to this part of the state where you would have the opposite stereotype, and it's, it, it's not true. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and this Colorado College survey bears that out. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I didn't bring the numbers in with me, but there were two areas that were particularly striking, and that is that there was very large agreement about preserving public lands, keeping those in, in federal control. So huge numbers approving of that, regardless of, of sort of political affiliation or geography. And then a <clears throat> significant support for renewable energy, which was uh, striking to me as well. Maybe that has more to do with the fact that fossil fuels are not super relevant in Idaho, not a big part of our economy like they might be in a state like, you know, Colorado or Wyoming. Uh, but sort of interesting um, agreement around some big issues that we might otherwise think of as being very partisan. Yeah, and I see that too. I've conducted two different surveys, uh, one in Oregon and uh, one in Idaho, uh, comparing rural and urban areas. It was specifically directed uh, concerning water resources, but we had uh, survey questions on there about environmental belief and climate change, political ideology, on and on. And if there are any differences, they're minimal at best. And it has to do with everything from land management, government regulations, and so on. We're just not seeing that big of differences in, on many issues. And yet, we we think it is, right? And we, mm-hmm. we came in thinking we should do a, a, an episode today about this divide, right? Certainly, people think that they're differently, even if it turns out they're not as different. So why 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 is this message out there? Why is, is um, do people believe that there's that kind of difference? Oh, boy, that is a great question. And I wish somebody had that answer. I think a lot of it just has to do with these preconceived notions. And uh, we just can't get away from them. And I th- there are a lot of people out there who know there, there aren't that many differences. But it's just uh, a lot of it's just getting out of your door and, and going different places. It does make me wonder, though, I was thinking about a couple of articles that came out recently, one in High Country News mm-hmm. um, and another in BuzzFeed News uh, by Anne Helen Peterson, who was here in Boise not too long ago, um, who were talking about how those at sort of the political margins are maybe setting the terms of discourse or the terms of political speech for the rest of us. And so maybe make us think that things are more polarized than they are. So one article was talking about uh, North State or Jefferson, sort of the (laughs) folks who really want to secede parts of California and Oregon because they feel that their rural economic and political interests aren't being represented by urban California elites. And then the other article by Peterson in BuzzFeed News talking about how a lot of um, very far-right conservative folks have moved up to northern Idaho and are sort of setting the terms of what it means to be conservative there in a way that's silencing uh, moderates. And so I think it could be that even though most people are identifying as as moderates or undecideds, um, what we see in the media or in the sort of political discourse generally tends to be much Perpetual. more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have to agree with that. I've spent a lot of time down in the, the state of Jefferson, and, and you do see that, and it's, a, it's an interesting place, and I think uh, there's a term for it, the moving, at least. It's, I think it's called the big sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, now people have the ability to actually move to areas they feel like they belong, mm-hmm. and so that may be a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, in this, in this in economy, where, and it doesn't affect everyone, right, but when you can increasingly mm-hmm. work from home or 
work remotely, right? You that you can just go wherever you would like. Right? Yeah. I know plenty of people who live here and technically their home office is in Nashville or Salt Lake or 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 wherever or it's just on their laptop and um and so then, you know, if you're not tied to I got to go to the mill, right? Or I have to go to this firm uh, and punch in where do you want to go? Where do you want to go to the places where the people who are like you live, right? Whether that means that they are outdoorsy or they're conservative or they're whatever, right? Um, and uh, I think, Jen, you make an interesting and important point about um, kind of the silencing effect of the the, the extreme um, uh, uh, folks with extreme attitudes. Who, uh, it, th- this is, this th- those kinds of people have been structuring our options for a long time, right? Political scientists, um, have studied, you know, why does it seem that we consistently nominate candidates who are far more ideological than most of the people are, even most of the people who vote for them are. And it's because some kinds of people tend to participate in, you know, all the time, right? And, and other kinds of people, typically more moderate, less passive, tend to show up in the general election or just the presidential mm-hmm. election, right? Well, and so there's a scholar out of, out of Colorado who refers to the, the kind of person who, uh, who votes all the time is your you know your your obnoxious uncle at Thanksgiving dinner right the one who always <laughs> wants to talk about politics well he's going to be none voting. of my uncles are obnoxious it's okay oh, mine, mine are. are so they they <laughs> ever get out uh, but he you know your, those obnoxious uncles um, they're the ones who are are choosing your party nominees right and those are the ones who are giving money and those are the ones who are volunteering and that happens on the left and the right but. Uh, and then by the time that everybody else who's not maybe so obnoxious um, decides to show up, well, now they're choosing between an R and a D, right? And and they, and uh, that in recent years with the rise of social com- media and online communication has that those same people now are are kind of you know, bullying more moderate mm-hmm. people out of the of the discourse, right? And and and, and really kind of elbowing everybody out of the political arena, but but themselves. All right. Well, I think we're going to yeah, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We'll talk a little bit more with Monica Hubbard about some of the uh, work she's been doing um, related to water. And and uh, we'll see what kinds of uh, of differences among the kinds of people we're talking about today emerge, if any at all. And uh, but um, so stay tuned for that. And we'll be right back. Your favorite radio station on secret ballots everywhere. Radio Boise. Hey, this is Justin Vaughn, and you are listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise, KRBX, 89.9 FM, called Well Boise. I'm here with Jen Schneider and Monica Hubbard. Uh, so, Monica, you're our guest du jour. You're in the hot seat. Ooh, boy. Uh, it's actually kind of warm in here, so literally at the hot seat. Yeah, um, yeah. I think there's a heater underneath me. You also <laughs> yeah. have your fancy jacket on, though, Justin. I feel like I got, you can get, I got this fancy yeah, jacket. You have tenure. You can take it off. Uh, yeah. Pen- I'm not taking it off. <laughs> the, the tenure could go with it. You know. Good point. Good point. <laughs> Uh, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I just finished teaching class, so I'm a little bit uh, slower than normal. But, uh, you know, I, I do I, I do a lot of research on water, especially Western water policy and management. And I've worked in Oregon and now here in Idaho, which is very exciting. Uh, I have some bad news for people. Oregon and Idaho are not that much different. 
um, scary, I know. And uh, so what we did, my wait. My, so when you say that, it makes is there an assumption here that Idaho and Oregon are very oh, different? Oh, because absolutely. Of, because of Portland or Be, because of Portland. Okay. I think uh, a lot of people uh, attribute Oregon as Portland, and it is not. It's a very diverse state. Uh, a political ideology, especially, and the rural and urban perceived divide. Uh, so that's 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 what was really interesting coming here in Idaho to, to really not see that big of a difference. Uh, yeah, so I worked in Oregon. My colleagues and I did a, I think three different surveys of the Oregon general public just about water to figure out what people knew about water, their risk perception, uh, their environmental belief, uh, what they do, where, how do they think it should be used and managed. And uh, it was really interesting to find in Oregon, not that big of a difference between the rural and urban populations. And so was the motivation for doing the survey simply because water in the West is a big deal, because of the droughts of the last few years? What, what were you I'm trying to I'm going to say yes to all of that. Really, the motivation was Oregon at the time was the only Western state without a water plan or a water policy. Uh, there's a preconceived notion that Oregon has a lot of water. It's not the case. It's even though Willamette Valley. So Oregon was developing a, a water policy and water plan. And a lot of it had to do with the Columbia River Basin Treaty negotiations. And so uh, they really wanted to know what the public perceived. And so we wanted to compare the rural areas and urban areas. They were kind of being managed differently. And what we found was we asked people concerning their environmental values and beliefs Again, their climate change, uh, their knowledge about water. Just so you know, Oregonians have a kind of a low knowledge of water, how it's being used. And can you uh, give us an example? Oh, oh, great. Uh, uh, yeah, one great example is uh, we asked them where they thought most of Oregon's water was being used for, what sector, and the vast majority believed it was for drinking water. Hmm. And when in fact it's. 81% was agriculture. Is that because people in Oregon don't bathe as much as other people? Uh, oh, we're going to get Justin, tweets. you are in this room with me right now, and apparently you know the answer to that. Now we know why you're not taking your coat off. That's exactly it. <laughs> or the like mask that I have. Uh, we don't bathe at all. Oh. So there you go. Was, yeah. I bet that's true of Idahoans too, though. I that bet, they don't I bet bathe most. <laughs> no, uh, Idahoans are good, clean people. I good, clean fun. Yeah. Good, clean people. fun. Yes, um, I'm guessing that most people don't know how much of our water goes to agriculture, which is it's the bulk of our water. It's around uh, 80 percent here. Uh, as, yeah, as well, here in Idaho, I want to say 82 <clears throat> percent of our water goes to agriculture. And what most people don't realize is, I think about 14 or 15 percent of our water goes to aquaculture. Huh. And can you tell us what aquaculture uh, is? Aquaculture, you definitely don't want to swim in aquaculture water. It's great. It's Think of fish farms. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We raise uh, most of, uh, um, you know, uh, non-wild fish mm -hmm. here in Idaho. Mm -hmm. So aquaculture is a big driver of our economy and uh, uses quite a bit of water. <laughs> you mentioned some climate change findings. I'd be really interested in hearing Abs those because I think most people assume... Uh, in terms of the politics of those states that, you know, sort of the attitudes towards climate change are a foregone conclusion, uh, but you oh, suggest oh, not. Uh, they, it is not. And I think it's really only, uh, you know, you really hear policymakers. And again, your loudmouth uncle, Jen's loudmouth uncle, who... Uh, not Jen's. Not Jen's. No, my uncles are kind and... Mm. Oh, I'm sorry, my loudmouth uncle. Thoughtful. You Thoughtful. know, they, there's a belief that most of the population doesn't believe in climate change and they that they also don't believe that it's uh, mostly man 
uh, due to man or they think it's natural. And uh, what we found in Oregon when we split up rural and urban was uh, the vast majority of Oregonians, whether depending where they lived, believed in climate change and is due to uh, man. And we did the same thing here in Idaho. J- just men? Just men. Okay. Not women. <laughs> just me. Not the ladies. Not Sorry, the ladies. I just pulled a Justin Trudeau. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, mansplaining you. Person kind oh. is doing this. You'll regret that later. So, yeah, okay. just men. Okay, good. And so what we found here in Idaho, we actually broke up our survey. And this is, I think, one of the biggest challenges when we start looking at data is how we define rural and urban. And if we actually followed probably uh, the methodology most use, Idaho would be considered a pro- predominantly urban area. Yeah. So we we uh, in, in the work we've been doing, we we someone asked, you know, how mm-hmm. can we break down some of these survey results that we come up with in urban yeah. and rural uh, uh, divide uh, breakdowns? And so we said, well, sure, but how do you de- how do you define that? Mm-hmm. And so the Department of Labor uh, has a um, has an urban rural breakdown mm-hmm. right and turns out only seven of our counties are considered rural or are considered urban by the department of labor but they, they do it by population or what it's uh, fifty thousand people or more so you have to have an urban area of fifty thousand or more in that county for it to count as, as urban. an urban area okay so only seven of our 44 counties are urban mm-hmm. but those seven counties have two-thirds of our population mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. you know and you know, most people in idaho live in an urban county mm-hmm. right which i think if you're driving through some of those urban counties it's not exactly what we think of when you think of no. you know urban america and i think uh i have to go back but i think there are about five different ways you can define it and different governmental agencies define rural and urban differently and what you're looking at is uh, i think the office of management and budget started that and basically breaking it down by county there are other ways like commuting distance to urban areas hmm. uh, what we used here for our study in idaho was uh, the census, the new census definitions. Mm-hmm. So we have urban areas of 50,000 or more, and we have urban clusters, which is small towns, like 2,500 to 50,000, and then the rest is rural. Mm-hmm. Why do the definitions matter for people who aren't n- nerds like us? I mean, I mean why, why the arguments over what counts as urban versus rural? Well, I think it really matters when you start looking at indicators such as uh, level of education or poverty and so on. I mean, when you start looking at different definitions, that it changes how you quite count a bit. matters. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, any other interesting findings about water you want to leave us with? Oh boy, so many. Uh, you know, I think what was really interesting. There's also this preconceived notion here in Idaho that we are against any sort of, say, regulation concerning like our our land use. But in terms of water, the majority of Idahoans, no matter where they are in a small town, an urban area, or rural. Uh, believe that we should manage our land to protect our water sources, and that includes government regulations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think, that is surprising. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know, isn't it? We were surprised, <laughs> too. Shocking. That's probably, I think, one of the bigger findings. There's really no difference, and uh, we're okay with some regulations. We're going to be back with some more shocking information ah, here yes. uh, momentarily, uh, which means we have about uh, a minute to come up with it. Um, but uh, so stick with us. Uh, this is Justin Vaughn and Jen Schneider with Monica Hubbard on the Big Tent. You're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, uh, Caldwell, Boise. We'll be right back. This is 89.9 FM, community radio for Boise and beyond, because your voice matters.
And we're back. This is Justin Vaughn, and I'm here with Jen Schneider on uh, The Big Tent. Uh, we're here with Monica Hubbard, our colleague in the School of Public Service at Boise State University. Uh, and uh, we were just talking about some shocking things about <laughs> Idaho and attitudes on reg- the reg- regulatory state. Mind-blowing. And we're going to continue with that, that jam. Uh, Jen, regulatory actions, and you were just... You were just wowing Monica and I off air about some new fracking <laughs> ideas. Well, it's, so it's not specific to Idaho, actually. Um, and let, let me preface this that by saying that I think, <clears throat> generally speaking, we understand that when uh, a new administration takes over, there's going to be new ideologies, there's going to be rollbacks of certain policies, insertions of new policies. And that probably shouldn't shock anybody. Uh, but I did... I admit to taking a deep breath, maybe even a gasp this week um, when I saw the headlines showing that uh, the Trump administration was rolling back regulations to prohibit flaring from uh, natural gas uh, production sites um, or well pads. Um, so I guess a good way to explain this would be to imagine if you were, you know, filling up your bike tire, it gets really full, and then you undo the valve, and you pull it off, and you know some air escapes, right? That's sort of the idea with flaring, is that as these industrial processes are happening, there's going to be some gas that escapes. Uh, unfortunately, the gas that's escaping is methane. It's a super powerful greenhouse gas, much more powerful than CO2, although it doesn't stay in the atmosphere as long. Um, and we have images from satellite images from NASA that show these methane hotspots around the country. It's, it's pretty chilling stuff. Um, and also, so there's environmental effects. There's also public health effects. Um, there's, you know, often there are some gnarly chemicals and things that are released along with the methane that can create respiratory problems for people. But I, I think uh, the other interesting piece is that there's a business case for capturing this methane because it has value on the market. And so it doesn't make any sense really to decide to roll back, from my perspective, to roll back this regulation entirely when it protects public health, protects the environment, and there's a business case for for selling this stuff. Um, so I, I was trying to make sense of it. I, I don't know if it's just part of the sort of like the um, environmental machine under Trump. They, they're just intent on rolling back everything that was done under Obama, regardless of whether or not it was sort of a common sense policy. Um, but from, from my point of view, this is one of those where I'm like, but wait, this is common sense stuff. The majority of Americans want clean air. They want clean water. They want efficiency. Um, and this sort of goes against all of those. So it was a surprising thing to see. I wasn't that surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I should be, right. Because <laughs> you're from Oregon. I'm from Oregon, exactly. I'm a cynic. Yeah, well, it's that it's kind of that goes back to what we were talking about before, right? You have these elites that uh, mm-hmm. are are far more ideologically motivated than um, the average person. And the average person might say, well, yeah, I guess, you know, there's some nuance here. And, you know, regulation makes sense. And, they're, you know, and, and you're going to have people say we got to either regulate the heck out of it or we got to get rid of all of that regulation. And and the regular person is right there in the middle and yeah. not really being represented mm-hmm. by either but either person. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine on Facebook said it rem- It uh, sounded him like revenge politics, which I thought was an interesting uh, framing of, of that when we think about this sort of huge pendulum sh- mm-hmm. shift that's happening with environmental policy right now. No, I have to agree. I think it, it might be mm-hmm. revenge politics. And I think it also is a, a big factor is listening to the industry 
more than anything. What mm-hmm. are some of the things that it can do that just makes it cheaper? Mm-hmm. And it's, mm-hmm. you see it in, I think, in all parts of the mm-hmm. environmental sector. Mm-hmm. Or not, not just, I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing with healthcare politics is mm-hmm. revenge politics as well. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, yeah, and when I guess there's those egos and mm-hmm. hurt feelings at play, mm-hmm. what? No, I suppose, you know, I have a, stu- a PhD student who's working on, he, he's writing his dissertation on the clean power plan and the sort of move back and forth between Obama and Trump. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think uh, he would argue that, that there's a perspective that says, well, you know, there were special interests that had grabbed environmental policy under Obama. It was just environmentalists. Um, you know, I think there's interesting arguments where we can make that more nuanced. But it does it does feel like a very um, strong pendulum shift in the other way towards industry voices. There's been some reporting that it suggests that Scott Pruitt, head of the EPA, has primarily met with industry folks um, yeah. since taking uh, that position. So perhaps that's at the root of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Justin? What have you been thinking about reading about this week? Hmm. I guess uh, the Olympics, you know, are going yeah. on. <laughs> and, uh, What's your favorite? Uh, well, Monica really wants you to say curling. Oh, please say we, curling. We're, we're going to have a curling team, a school of public service curling team, everybody. It's going to be amazing. Oh, well, this is going to be another team mm. I don't make, probably. Mm. Uh, uh, well, are you always the first to get cut? Probably. Oh, yeah, it? for sure. Until well. I stop trying. And then, <laughs> uh, no, I think for, for me with the Olympics, what's really been interesting is the political part of it, right? And, and you know, the media is covering the, the North Korean, you know, mm. um, uh, uh, representative and the extent to which they're interacting or not interacting with the Pence and the vice president and, being there, you yes. know, and then yeah. and and you know you see this kind of kind of weird, I guess, like glowing media coverage. Of, Look at what a wonderful job this North Korean person has done representing their uh, their state. Leaving aside, regardless of your politics, I think we can all probably agree that North Korea is as a country has done some pretty terrible things to its own people, uh, and kind of ignoring all of that, and then you see this kind of like more conservative critique coming up of, oh, yeah, look at this wonderful person who's presiding over the deaths of millions of people who are being worked to death, you know, and... and uh, uh, On the other hand, sort of a banality of evil thing, of right? Course, like, of course, what, what did we expect? That there'd be... To come out and be a troll or something? No, right, <laughs> right. right. Oh, right. great human. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to me, I guess, and, and kind of seeing that play out, but, but it's not surprising it played out because uh, today... Everything that happens, we gotta have somebody get mad about mm-hmm. about about it, and then somebody get mad about what they're mad about, and you know whether it's snowboarders, you know, and what they say, or how some gold medalist is carrying the flag or whatever. And mm-hmm. so, it's, so it's been kind of interesting that we have this four every four year kind of pageant, mm-hmm. and uh, and and this year kind of the icing on it is is you know our our nonstop outrage is is just kind of added to it. Well, there was a speaking of snowboarders and outrage in our moment. There were a couple of articles that came out this week about Sean White and yep. some accusations against him. Mm-hmm. I believe he for calls sexual it harassment. gossip. <laughs> oh, right. That then, was the thing. Yeah. And then uh, and then apologize for calling it gossip. And yeah. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, that's another rich topic that we mm-hmm. do not have time to get into this week. Yeah. Um, Monica, we are um, we are basically uh, up against the clock. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was it was mm-hmm. nice to learn about water and the differences are not between Oregon and Idaho and all of these other places. Mm-hmm. And so thanks, Jen, on behalf of Corey Cook, who could not be here today. Uh, this is Justin Vaughn. You've been listening to The Big Tent, and uh, we will be back with you next week. <laughs>